When we sentence someone to life sentences, that means a life sentence. In the jail, maximum security, 23 hours a day. Matter of fact, I'd go one step further. That one hour he's out, he should be in general population. That was Ontario Premier Doug Ford in the uh, Ontario legislature today. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's the kind of statement uh, an elected official, let alone a head of government, should be making. The idea that we want to contract out to criminals, criminal behavior, to deal with those who are duly convicted in a justice system that's supposed to have some integrity. I don't think that's a path we want to go down. But it speaks to a sentiment that exists in the Canadian population, that Paul Bernardo is the worst of the worst. That Nobody would shed a tear if we woke up to the news tomorrow that Paul Bernardo was no longer of this world. The idea that Paul Bernardo spent the rest of his days uh, in abject misery is kind of the, the bare minimum maybe that, that we all expect. So the news this week uh, that the convicted murderer, serial rapist, has been transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison, uh, suffice to say, has not gone over well. The condemnation has been pretty universal and unanimous. Uh, The federal public safety minister yesterday uh, informing Canadians that he has reached out to Correctional Services Canada, expressed uh, the government's dismay and the dismay on behalf of Canadians. And there apparently will be a review of this decision. Now, that's probably as far as the government can go. Uh, It's not for the government to tell Correctional Services Canada what to do or how to deal with a, a certain inmate. But the idea, though, that Canadians be informed of all of this, that there be some transparency, maybe that's not unreasonable here. And so I think we're left wondering why. Why would somebody like Paul Bernardo, who is classified as a dangerous offender on top of everything else, be moved to a medium security prison? Why is the system, I guess, trying to make his life easier if that's what this is? Now, this doesn't necessarily speak to Paul Bernardo's future and his future status. Certainly, I would think or hope that, you know, regardless of whether it's this prison or the one he was in before, maybe a different one, this is somebody who is never going to leave prison. But I think that's part of the concern here, that this is a gradual uh, downgrading of his status. And the prospect of him being in a minimum security prison or even the prospect of him somehow setting foot outside of prison at some point down the road, I, I think greatly horrifies Canadians. So how do we better understand why this decision would have been made, what it means, what it means to Bernardo, uh, specifically in terms of his daily reality? Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Shane Martinez, a Toronto-based criminal defense attorney, also adjunct professor of prison law at Osgoode Hall Law School, York University. Professor Martinez, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right. I mean, again, with this review taking place, I don't know that we have a a definitive answer as to why this decision was was reached. But what's your understanding of why a decision like this might have been reached? Yeah. So, you know, I want to avoid some of the speculation that's been going on because there's certainly been no shortage of that, especially from some government officials who really should know better. Um, you know, at, at the outset, I think it's important to to recognize that public contempt for Bernardo, who some, you know, he's someone who in sentencing parlance would be considered the worst offender in the worst circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, and that contempt is 
undoubtedly justified. And the ongoing anger and pain felt by victims' families, that's beyond reproach as well. But what's problematic here are government officials feigning surprise and indignation about the operation of a system that they themselves are in charge of. Um, the issue, uh, when we hear folks like, let's say, Doug Ford speak about, you know, how he thinks the situation should be dealt with, even though we're talking about two different levels of government here, um, provincial and, and federal, is that if you were to ask him, the same way if you were to ask many politicians, um, you know, well, how, how does the prison system work? Um, a lot would be hard-pressed to actually explain it to you. Um, so what we have here in, in Canada is this legislative regime that includes something called the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, uh, an accompanying set of regulations, and also this set of rules called commissioner's directives. And all of those together govern how someone is managed um, on the inside. Uh, and the overarching goal that the Correctional Service of Canada has is to create a correctional system that contributes to the maintenance of a just, peaceful, and safe society. And it, and it has as part of its legislated mandate to carry out sentences in a safe and humane manner. And that includes for the worst of the worst offenders. Um, the uh, correctional investigator, who's a high up uh, ombudsperson in Canada that looks over federal prisons, once commented that, you know, we send people to prison for punishment. We don't send them, we, sorry, sorry, we send people to prison as punishment. We don't send them to prison for punishment, right? It's, it's going to prison. It's the loss of liberty that's the punishment. It's not uh, the imposition of any particular classification once you're there. That's the punishment. That's rather just an administrative function. Um, and there's a number of different uh, aspects that uh, CSC looks at. It's kind of this multifaceted process to determine whether somebody goes into maximum security, medium, or minimum. Um, and they look at, for example, the offense that the person committed, uh, their behavior while they've been in, um, their social and criminal history, whether or not they're designated as a dangerous offender, if they have mental illness, what their potential for violence is. Um, and the simple fact of the matter is, is that after 29 years in custody, even someone who is uh, as despised as Bernardo is, um, it's not unusual for someone like that to cascade through the system. We're talking three decades that have gone by now. Um, it's not unusual for somebody to move from a maximum security classification to a minimum, excuse me, to a medium. Um, but that's something that is, is just not widely understood. Right. I think there's a, you know, for, for the general public, we associate, you know, the level of security with the severity of the crime. That someone who's in a minimum security prison committed the, the least serious of crimes, you know, sort of the bare minimum that would warrant incarceration in the first place and, and so on. That the worst of the worst, they go to, to maximum security. And as you mentioned, I mean, that, that is a factor. But what are the other factors in determining where an inmate is housed? Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, in the corrections and conditional release regulations, um, and also in Commissioner's Directive 705, um, which deals with security classification and penitentiary placement, it says that a, a prisoner shall be classified as maximum security if that prisoner is assessed by the Correctional Service of Canada as presenting a high probability of escape and a high risk to public safety in the event of an escape or if the person is uh, considered to require a high degree of supervision and control within the penitentiary. So that's what's required to be met in order for a person to be classified as maximum security. 
And uh, by comparison, if we look at, you know, that's how Bernardo had previously been classified. Um, we look now to where he's classified as a medium security inmate. Well, someone's classified as medium if they present a low to moderate probability of escape and a moderate risk to, to the safety of the public in the event of an escape or if they require a moderate degree of supervision and control within the penitentiary. So there's some flexibility and discretion on the part of correctional officials here. And what they do is, again, they look at uh, a number of factors. They look at psychological risk assessments. They look at the person's behavior in the institution, their completion of programming, whether they have addiction issues, all all kinds of of different uh, factors they look at to determine um, and scale whether or not the person should be maximum security, um, medium or minimum. But it's not something where they solely look at the nature of the offense. Now, you know, the the reference by Ontario's Premier to to the general population, I mean, it does speak to uh, an issue that that Corrections Canada does have to deal with. Paul Bernardo is somebody who does receive some or has received some degree of protection, essentially, as he's been in custody, which, as I understand, evolved a a lot of time spent in, in solitary confinement. So the circumstances under which officials would determine that some level of protection is warranted, how does that factor into any kind of a decision about, again, where that inmate is is going to be incarcerated yeah so so it's a great question as well and and this is again where it gets a little bit speculative but um you know even though somebody might require protection um and may require isolation to some degree within the institution that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to stay within a maximum security institution a medium security institution is still very much a prison we're still talking razor wire high fences guard towers dogs so on and so forth it's very much a prison um uh, it's just at a different security classification so just because, because somebody requires protection doesn't necessarily mean that they have to stay at a maximum they can go to a medium um Again, without getting into too much speculation about Bernardo specifically, my guess is that his experience at the at the medium security institution is not going to be significantly different than it was at the maximum security institution. And that's because in all likelihood, he is going to be significantly isolated from the remainder of the prison population um, for safety and security reasons. What the public safety minister uh, talked about yesterday in calling Correctional Services Canada to, to maybe seek answers or to express uh, dismay or frustration with the decision, I mean, that's kind of going right up to the line, I guess, of where the government can go because there's not really the jurisdiction uh, for the government to tell uh, Correctional Services Canada what to do or not do with regard to a particular inmate. But what, what is the, you know, the length of that, that arm's length relationship? Right. And we do see what appears to be potential overstepping of that. You know, when the public safety minister comes out and remarks that the decision is, in his words, shocking and incomprehensible. Um, In my respectful view, those are uh, irresponsible comments. Um, The minister knows exactly how the system works. He's responsible for the system. It's part of his ministerial portfolio. He knows how the prison system works, how the classification system works. There's nothing that's shocking or incomprehensible about this um, to him. At least there ought not to be for a minister that's competent and able to to take charge of the responsibilities that they have. And when they make these proclamations about, you know, intervening and in going after the Correctional Service of Canada and, and essentially, you know, 
suggesting to the public that they're going to be pushing for a reversal of the decision in some way, um, if nothing else, a review of it. Um, that's concerning for a number of reasons. Um, one, it, it's then we have, you know, the first and foremost thing is that we have politicians then who are making decisions about individual inmates um, and how those inmates are going to be managed on the inside. I don't think any of us want to live in a society like that where those decisions are politicized. The second issue, and, and this is actually much more revealing, is that it shows a tendency of the state, of politicians, government officials, to only engage on prison issues in circumstances like this, where we're dealing with the worst of the worst, the ones that make the news, but they refuse to engage on systemic issues that are recognized and reported on by the Office of the Correctional Investigator, the Auditor General of Canada, the Senate Standing Committee on Human Rights. The, the systemic issues regarding classification within prisons, such as, for example, that black and indigenous prisoners are systematically overclassified. They're put into higher security classifications than they warrant on a disproportionate basis to other prisoners. We see the government doing nothing about those reports for, that are coming in from the highest levels, despite the fact that they've been receiving those reports for over a decade. So what we see is that they're not taking an evidence-based approach to correction reform and taking action around problems that exist in the system. Rather, they're just uh, engaging in, in politics here and responding to public outrage. And instead of trying to explain to the public how the classification system works, it's simply rhetoric about things being shocking and incomprehensible. And this is really a wasted opportunity when the public could be engaged and it could be explained to them how the classification system works, how prisons work. But we just see a complete lack or disinterest by public officials to engage in that. We'll leave it there. We appreciate the insight uh, on all this. Professor Martinez, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much. All the best. Uh, that is Shane Martinez, uh, Toronto-based criminal defense attorney, adjunct professor of prison law at York University's Osgoode Hall Law School. So kind of an overview, I guess, of how all of this works. I don't know the Canadians are going to feel any better about this decision. But at least maybe we can better understand how all of this works. There was an obligation, I think, that, that we entrust to, to these agencies uh, that, that we be protected from individuals like this. Paul Bernardo was now 58 years old. We still have these images of him, you know, back from when he was arrested and put on trial. We still picture him as, as a young man. Uh, so he's, he's, he's certainly older, but, you know, he's not to the point where he would not be a threat if he were outside of prison. I don't think somebody like this ever changes, nor should he really have the opportunity to try to demonstrate that he has. Uh, maybe that's relevant to some extent within the prison system. And again, what his day-to-day -day reality is. You know, maybe this would be a different conversation. Paul Bernardo were 70, 80 years old and, you know, fine. I mean, he needs certain kinds of treatment. He needs to be in a different facility, whatever. Uh, but at this point, you know, the idea that he is, has earned something, was deserving of something, that's not going to fly with Canadians. So I, I, I think there's still an obligation here for Correctional Services Canada to explain all of this to us, why this decision was made, what it means, and to try to better understand how exactly they perceive uh, Paul Bernardo. Is he a threat to escape? I, I, there's no evidence that he has tried to escape. 
Uh, and as time passes, that probably becomes more difficult, you know, by each passing year. So, okay, maybe that still means something. Uh, but the idea that, that he would pose a threat if he did escape, I, I think that's certainly fair to say that, sure, he still would. Why wouldn't he? Johnson's report is, it's nothing more than a whitewash. It has no credibility. And Mr. Johnson demonstrated that today in his inability to answer the most basic of questions. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, it was an interesting day in the nation's capital as David Johnston, former governor general, current special rapporteur on the issue of foreign interference, appeared before the parliamentary committee uh, tasked with looking into foreign interference. And it was a three hour meeting and there were a lot of tough questions for David Johnston who did seem to struggle at times to, to answer some of those questions. Part of the reason I think David Johnston was there was to defend himself, to defend his work, and to try to explain not just to the committee, but by extension to Canadians, why he's staying on in this position. Because, of course, last week, the House of Commons passed a motion calling on David Johnston to step aside, calling on the government to hold an independent public inquiry into all of this. So the fact that neither of those things has happened does seem to fly in the face of the expressed will of the House of Commons. So that's a, a problem for David Johnson. It was something he, he attempted to address here today. Uh, this has become, a, I think, a politically charged issue. Uh, this has become something I think Canadians are maybe starting to, to lose faith or trust in. There was a survey out last week suggesting only 27% of Canadians have confidence in this process now moving forward. Of course, David Johnson is going to see oversee some public hearings uh, on all of this. So it keeps the issue at the forefront. Uh, but I don't know that it's going to do anything to depoliticize all of this. Uh, so joining us uh, for some thoughts on what, if anything, today changed, where this whole, whole issue goes from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Lori Turnbull, uh, professor of political science at Dalhousie University, also director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie. Professor Turnbull, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, how high were your expectations going into today that maybe we would learn anything new or that some, some matters would be put to rest? And what did you see and hear? Oh, I didn't think there was anything that we'd learn that was new. I think I didn't think there was anything that would be put that would be put to rest whatsoever. Um, that was just not going to happen. I think that David Johnson has said the things that he wanted to say in public with his press conference on May 23rd when he said he wasn't going to recommend a public inquiry and he was going to proceed with public hearings. And, you know, we learned a little bit today, a little bit, where he said he's going to have advisors working with him who know things about uh, national security and things like that, but ultimately in the law and, you know, the, the sorts of things that we would, I think, anticipate. But no, I mean, this, this was the parties doing what they do in committee, which was all staking out their positions mm -hmm. and advancing their narratives and... It doesn't really matter how he answers their questions. Their their narratives are going to be the same. It seems as though maybe, you know, him being there was a recognition that maybe they need to, to convince Canadians uh, to, to have faith in this report or to have faith in this in this process. I mean, who are the stakes higher for here? Was this David Johnston going in because he felt like he, he needed to? So I think that's a very interesting question, actually, because it, depending on who was asking the question to him at the time, the Liberals were giving him options and opportunities to try to speak to the kind of attacks he's been facing over the past number of weeks. 
particularly in light of the fact that he didn't recommend a public inquiry. But even before that, his appointment to begin with, he's been under a lot of, of pressure and attacks from people who are saying he's, you know, he's a friend of the Trudeau's and he has no business doing this and that kind of thing. And I think you see from the other parties too, like that was that was liberals. That's where they were coming from. But then the NDP are trying to make the case that look, you know, we we respect you. We just disagree disagree with your decision. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the conservatives are basically look, Mister, you know, like do do you not see you're in a conflict here? Why do you not see that? Why are you doing this? And and the the line of argument from them is basically you are part of the Laurentian elite that Trudeau is also a part of, and you must understand why people have a problem with all this stuff. But it's interesting to think about whether Johnson himself is something to prove here. Because, like, the, the vote that happened in Parliament that was on the motion from the NDP around whether there's confidence in Johnson to do this job, and Parliament voted essentially voted against Johnson, saying yeah. they don't have confidence in him. Well, he's not the Prime Minister. So why does Johnson care whether Parliament has confidence in him, right? And he doesn't need that. He serves at the pleasure of the prime minister in this role. He serves the government. And so does he have anything to prove? Well, not really, right? Like, I think he's seeing this as he's putting on his lawyer's hat and saying, I'm doing this job. At the other, on the other hand, though, what's the point of all of it if parliament doesn't have confidence, if people, you know, as you say, you know, 27% have trust in this process? That is the problem. It's just that the guy is not a politician. So he doesn't have to care about that. Well, yeah, I mean, from a political perspective, it's kind of the worst of both worlds for the government moving forward here because it keeps this issue at the forefront, but a process maybe that, you know, certainly the opposition doesn't have confidence in, maybe not even Canadians. Well, that's it. And I mean, it it just, it's sort of like a bomb that keeps going off, right? Because you're not, you're not getting any kind of resolution to it. And it doesn't matter. I, I, I honestly think it doesn't matter what Johnson says. It doesn't matter how he answers any of these questions. Um, he's going to keep being confronted with the same line of argument around him being close to Trudeau. And here's another example of your kids going skiing together and your chalets are close together and uh, like all of that kind of stuff, right? They keep like the conservatives will keep bringing up this line of argument, which is lucrative for them because they, regardless of the foreign interference thing, they want to make the point that Trudeau is the kind of prime minister who appoints his friends to protect him. And it makes it, it helps them to build their line of argument that the government is somewhere between corrupt and incompetent or some mix of both. Right. And I think there's there's also the problem. And, and there were some questions, some pointed questions for Johnson today regarding his report. And, you know, for example, you had Aaron O'Toole who said, yes, I'll, I'll agree to receive this briefing from CSIS. And from what he told Parliament, that CSIS was very detailed in explaining how you know, the campaign against him in 2021 was coordinated by the Chinese yeah. government, by officials from the United Front uh, Work Department. Whereas in his report, David Johnston said there was no evidence that state actors were involved. And how, how do we explain this discrepancy? I think he had difficulty addressing some of those points. So even defending his own report seemed to be a challenge for him, which I, I don't think helps this whole broader question of, of faith or confidence. Yeah. And part of that could also be, like, as Johnson said himself, he's trying to separate the parts of his brain between the the top secret information, which cannot be shared, and then the information that he has that can. And so as soon as he says something like that, immediately people start to think, okay, well, what do you know that we don't? And why would I trust you? And that's the problem, that he's, you know, even though he's, he's trying to say, look, I'm not just saying trust me. Other people can get top secret information and look at stuff for themselves. Yeah, okay, I get that. But that's... That's not really helpful to us if, if those people decide not to get top secret clearance to check his work. If they don't do that, then we're stuck with trusting him. 
And that's where it becomes it becomes absolutely essential that people are able to say, this is a guy who can do the job. There is absolutely no reason to, to guess or worry that he might be trying to protect the government. And that's where his possible friendship with the Trudeau family becomes a problem, right? And that's why this, this kind of line of argument continues to take space because he is, like, he's, he's doing a difficult thing where he's saying, look, you know, I, I know you haven't seen all the information that I have, but I'm saying, look, this is what I've seen I need you to believe me on this. This is what's really going on. I think there's probably a lot of people who actually think that Johnson is telling the truth on all of this stuff. You know, like there's lots of people who will see his report and believe it, but not necessarily think that he's the right person to be saying it. So maybe the most likely scenario at this point is we, we continue down this track. We press forward. We get these public hearings. We, we still have, you know, the political fighting around all of this. But what are the chances that, you know, on the one hand, the government concedes the point and, and calls a public inquiry or, or Parliament goes a step further and says, you're ignoring our will on this motion. Maybe this becomes a confidence motion. You know, maybe the, the fate of the government is at stake. Are, are those scenarios at all likely, do you think? I don't understand why the NDP are not doing that. Or, I mean, I, I guess I understand. I, it must be for their own reasons to avoid election. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think if they have gone this far to say, we really want a public inquiry, we really think this is necessary, and they, and they keep saying it. They've said it this whole time. And Zygmunt Singh's appearance on committee today, which he normally doesn't do, obviously, but he was there today, it only underscores the party's commitment to having a public inquiry on this. So they keep pressing it, and they keep pressing it. But no, no, we're not going to make an election issue. Well, why not? You know, like, put your money where your mouth is then. And this all, I think, really comes down to where the NDP are in terms of what is the cost of their support for the government. And Polyev might continue to push on that. It depends on how badly they all want to go to election, how badly they want to avoid it, which is kind of lousy, Rob, because <laughs> if this all really comes down to just moving the chess pieces around your electoral fortunes and it's not really about foreign interference, then that kind of makes us all feel like, well, then what the heck is this all about? Yeah, good boy. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate your insight and perspective and all this, uh, Professor Turnbull. Thanks again for joining us here. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Lori Turnbull, uh, Dalhousie University Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration. Some thoughts on what we saw and heard today and maybe where this all goes from here. As it relates to the families of 9-11, I have two families that are close to me that lost loved ones. And so my heart goes out to them. And I would ask, you know, any player that has left or any player that would ever consider leaving have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the pga tour well things can change uh, a lot uh, over the course of a year that was last year uh, that's jay monahan tour commissioner for the pga talking about this upstart challenger live golf which was backed by the saudis the reference to 9-11 families was because 9-11 families had uh, spoken out uh, against Live Golf and the attention and prestige was receiving and their contention that this was basically Saudi blood money and something that the PGA was happy to capitalize on and to try to use that moral high ground to dissuade some of these players from joining this upstart league. There was a lot of money on the table from Live Golf and many took it. There were those, of course, who turned down that money, who stuck with the PGA, who believed that sticking with the PGA was the right thing to do. Like I say, a lot can change in a year. Today, some pretty shocking news from the world of golf. 
that despite all of this animosity and competition and some of these big moral issues, uh, PGA Tour and Live Golf are joining forces. Yes, they're merging. Now, how this merger is going to to play out exactly, I guess, remains to be seen. Whether there will still be separate co- uh, you know, competitions, whether they'll completely and totally merge in terms of rules of play, etc. A lot of details to be worked out. But you got to wonder what many of these players are thinking today. You know, the difficult choice that was before them. The money or the principle. And, and a, a framing that was certainly, you know, largely driven by the PGA to all of a sudden now, you know, the PGA do the very thing they were trying to discourage these players last year from doing. So, yeah, it is kind of shocking, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised because after all, this does come down to money. So how do we get to this point? How do we understand this decision? Well, our next guest uh, certainly took a stab at it, Scott Stinson, uh, with a great uh, piece uh, today at the National Post, nationalpost.com, uh, on all of this. Uh, Scott's uh, national sports columnist for Post Media and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Scott, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. I mean, you follow this you know, closer than, than most yeah. of us do. I mean, did, did you see this coming at all? How surprised were you, first of all? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say like 13. Um, it just, it was so out of the blue. Um, there'd been no suggestion at all that, that these talks were ongoing. I mean, the players themselves seem to have been completely blindsided by it. Um, so no, there was, there was no suggestion that this was in the offing. The the strange thing about it, well, there's obviously many strange things about it, but, but one of the things that sort of leaps out is that it kind of seemed like the PGA tour had, managed to erect the barricades and put up the sandbags and kind of after the initial incursion last year where a number of big names were lured away by huge contracts from live um it seemed like the pga had figured out a way forward to can kind of continue as is a bit more money going to some of the big stars a bit of a change to its schedule so it it seemed like they had kind of accomplished what they wanted in terms of fending off the challenge. And it was going to be a matter of waiting the live and Saudis out to see if they would continue running their operation, which has been really successful in getting a lot of attention, but not really successful in anybody actually caring about it. Um, and, And I do think that it seemed like we were set up for a thing like, you know, maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, some of these players that have gone over have said, well, I really enjoy making a lot of money, but it's kind of weird to be playing in these events that nobody pays any attention to because that was essentially where live golf was. So, you know, what changed to cause the PGA tour to completely uh, flip its position on this? I mean, as you say, presumably it's money and, and that, my my own theory, of which I have no actual evidence at this point, is that the Saudis and the Crown Prince and whoever was running that operation said, well, we've been really successful in making a lot of golfers rich, but this isn't really what we were trying to do. Nobody actually cares about this live golf. So maybe we just go to the PGA Tour and ask them how much money it takes to make all this go away. 
And it seems like that some version of that might be what have happened. What has happened? Yeah. You know, well, just, that would make the most sense, as you said. I mean, PGA yeah. was winning here, uh, but I mean, <laughs> sure at the same like time, it. I mean, if if the Saudis wanted to, I mean, they they could stick with this, even if they don't have the ratings yeah. or they can't attract some of the other big names. They could still keep pumping money into this, perhaps even endlessly. They could, and and that was kind of the the one of the oddest things about live golf as an enterprise was that. They were spending all this money, and, and of course, everybody knows this is part of a, a broader Saudi campaign, which which falls under the umbrella of the term sports washing, which is laundering your reputation through things that people like, so that they think about fun sports things and not necessarily human rights abuses um, and you know murder of journalists and various other uh, unpleasant things. So. But part of sports washing kind of has to be that people actually care about the enterprise in, in question. You know, one of the other things the Saudis have done is buy, for example, Newcastle United, a, a team in the English Premier League of soccer. And that team has been pretty successful. And mm-hmm. it went from being a basement team in the Premier League to I think they finished third overall in the standings, maybe fourth. Um, but, you know, they've qualified for the big competitions in Europe. They're part of probably the most popular soccer league in the world. They get a lot of attention for being, you know, for the Saudis do for having made inroads into the Premier League. Right. They hadn't really done that with this, with Liv. Like, they've been successful in getting a lot of big names signed up, but, but I mentioned this. The actual tournament just kind of happened over, you know, like, the fringe of the fringe of the golf world, um, and the sports world, because ultimately there's no interest in in these tournaments that are happening in Tulsa or uh, Singapore or wherever, and it's like a bunch of guys, and they're all getting super rich, and nobody really cares much about the legacy of and the prestige of these events. So that part of it was always kind of strange. They could continue to fund it forever, but at some point people had to pay attention to it for you to get the benefit of doing it in the first place. And what they've done now is they basically, you know, put all that to a side and now they will be whatever the entity that is born out of this merger will be the only professional golf thing going and it'll be funded from what we can tell by the same entity that funded Live Golf, which is this public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. So where previously there was 48 golfers who were playing on this Live Tour, uh, now all of them seem like they're destined to be doing that whether or not they wanted to. Um, and obviously, Rob, you touched on the, the many, many golfers who turned down live right. in treaties. Um, you know, they must be kind of looking at each other going, sorry, we stuck with BG Tour for what now? Because, you know, presumably there's no nine-figure payday awaiting them any longer. They would have had to take that back when it meant something. Well, yeah, exactly. And the ones who did take it and, you know, they were basically banned from PGA events, but now they're mm-hmm. they're back in the folds. So they, they, you know, the Dustin Johnson and Cam Smith and Brooks Kepka, yep. Bill Mickelson, right? The ones you, you pointed out in your piece, uh, they yep. get the best of both worlds here. <laughs> yeah. it's, I, I'm laughing because it, it is kind of bizarre. Like, you know, and there has been some reporting suggesting that these these the band players will have to pay some sort of fine to reapply for the <laughs> PGA Tour membership. But like, 
if you're Phil Mickelson and you made 150 million dollars or 250 million dollars, and they're like, your fan is ten, your fine is ten thousand dollars, Phil. Like, okay, I think you can probably swing it. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's funny because on some level, you know, the Rory McIlroy and the Tiger Woods, the people who refuse the money. Uh, Hideki Matsuyama is another guy who had a reported huge offer that he turned down. You know, they can sort of say, well, at least we can keep our hands, heads held high and that we, you know, turned down the money when we were being lured away from something and now we don't really have a choice in the matter because PGA Tour went and did this deal without asking us. Um, but it's probably not going to make them feel any better about all the money that they for you know that they gave up in the process because they if you're Rory McIlroy you could still have the same arrangement a year from now and also be an awful lot richer and uh, you're not because you thought you stood up for something and and picked a side in a in a battle that it turned out your you know um, team ended up surrendering anyway. So moving forward, I mean, you know, there's some question about how this is all going to work because Liv had some different formats uh, and some different sure. rules. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Liv just kind of vanishes and it just all falls under the PGA umbrella. But it's not clear at this point, is it? It's not clear at all. Um, the one thing that they did that they said uh, in their in their release was that an, it, it's going to be the formation of a new entity. Um, so it's not going to be called Live. Well, actually, they didn't say what's going to be called. But whatever the new thing is, which will incorporate the PGA Tour, the European-based DP World Tour, and Live Golf, will be called some new thing, presumably with golf in the title. And it will be the the series of tournaments going forward. Um, presumably, many of the golf tournaments on the PGA Tour that people know, you know, the one in Pebble Beach, the Jack Reckless one that just happened, Memorial, the Arnold Palmer at Bay Hill, Riviera, you know, maybe Canadian Open, of course. Like, there's all kinds of ones that presumably will continue to operate under this new banner. Um, my guess would be that all the weird elements that made live different than PGA Tour Golf will just vanish because I don't know why you would have two completely different ways of running golf tournaments, which is the way Liv kind of positioned themselves since they started. Like, they were all about, we've got this new, wacky, golf but louder, modern way of playing uh, tournaments, and I don't see why you'd have those occasionally and every other week have a regular golf tournament in a way we're used to it. So my guess would be Liv kind of gets swallowed up. They've, they've suggested some elements, like the team competition that was part of Liv will remain but that's the only thing they indicated would continue so you know how that all works and what that all looks like i guess we'll find out and i should add too rob that you know it does seem like they announced this without anybody knowing about it and it'll be interesting to see what kind of pushback they get from this point forward well will the networks that are pga tour partners and which steadfastly refuse to air live stuff in in the u.s and canada in particular will they really want to be partnered with this new entity will the players all want to play in it will tiger woods agree to play on a tour that has kind of done the way it has gone down so i I think there's a lot of questions still to be answered um in the months to come yeah no kidding 
Uh, anyway, your latest is mentioned up at NationalPost.com and all of this. Scott, uh, appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us here. Anytime, Rob. Have a good one. Cheers. All the best. Uh, Scott Stinson, National Sports Columnist for Post Media, NationalPost.com. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> look, if you want to make the argument that, hey, you know, we just, we got to learn to live with Saudi Arabia. They're a relevant power. We do business with them. That's just how it is. I mean, you could make that argument. I just think it's the, you know, the hypocrisy of the PGA to take that moral high ground last year and then to flip and all of a sudden embrace that other perspective. It's a bit of whiplash there. Uh, and then I mean, what, why is Saudi Arabia doing all of this anyway? I guess, you know, sport washing, as Scott referred to it, the same reason uh, Qatar was so intent on, on hosting the World Cup. But it's just bonkers. Like, you know, Scott mentioned Newcastle United, which was purchased by Saudis. Uh, you know, Manchester United, uh, an even bigger and more historic club, they're up for sale. There's some Saudi interest looking there. But it's not just the teams. Like, this is what's wild. So uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, a famous soccer player, uh, Portuguese uh, superstar. Uh, he recently went to play in Saudi Arabia. There are teams in Saudi Arabia. There's a league in Saudi Arabia. And they just threw insane amounts of money, like hundreds of millions of dollars at him. Now it looks as though Lionel Messi, the Argentinian superstar, might follow to Saudi Arabia. And a deal on the table for him that could be somewhere in the neighborhood of like a billion dollars. Like, it's just insane. The Saudi League doesn't make that much money. Like, the Saudi League has the TV deals and the attendance that they have hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at players. It's Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's where the money's coming from. So they splash it around on golf leagues and sports teams and soccer superstars and whatever else. And to what end, right? If the government does not meet these demands, we will use all procedural tools at our disposal to block the budget from passing, including 900 amendments, lengthy speeches, and other procedural tools that are in our toolkit. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breganridge with you here on what's turning out to be a very busy Monday afternoon. So we got a lot to get to over the course of this hour. We will get to your phone calls as well. That was Conservative Leader Pierre Polyev uh, speaking earlier today, threatening to delay passage of the federal budget uh, if the Liberals don't meet a couple of demands or conditions here. Uh, the Conservatives want the government to present a plan to balance the budget. Also want to see any future increases to the carbon tax uh, canceled. Now, certainly when it comes to uh, the budget, there, there's, there's a real need right now, I think, for the government to not necessarily get to a balanced budget tomorrow, uh, but to recognize that, uh, you know, deficits are part of the problem right now. You know, that, that this, all of this spending has had some inflationary pressure uh, that we do need to address uh, the issue of debt. Now, we got the Bank of Canada set to make an announcement uh, later this week on Wednesday. Uh, as to whether they're going to hold the line on inflation, or rather on interest rates, or whether the, the fight against inflation warrants another rate increase. So the government does need to be cognizant of all of that. Now may be a time for austerity. I'm not sure we're getting that. That was interesting last week, though. We did see some surprisingly strong GDP numbers for the Canadian economy, uh, which I, I guess at some level is good news, but that might be just a, another kind of red flag for the Bank of Canada. And even though they'd said they were going to hold the line on interest rates for now, maybe we do see an increase announced this week. 
Anyway, joining us for some thoughts on some of these issues and, and also that broader question about debt. An interesting piece he wrote the other day as to why Canada may need, much like the U.S. has, uh, a debt ceiling. Uh, William Robson is CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, also chair of their Monetary Policy Council, much more at cdhowe.org. Bill, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome back to the program. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. I guess as we look ahead to uh, Wednesday and, you know, the the GDP numbers we saw last week, the most recent inflation numbers we saw, what's your sense of what we can expect or maybe expect on Wednesday? The Bank of Canada will be wondering uh, whether they need to apply any more uh, pressure on the brake or whether what they did already is sufficient, but it's just taking a while to come through. And you can make a pretty strong case that the latter is the case, that they don't need to do more. Uh, We're in an unusual period in the sense that inflation spiked up so high and is now coming down at at quite a rate. Um, Also, there are things that are making the economic... Uh, indicators harder to read, one of them being that immigration has gone up so much. So that's creating demand for certain types of things. Everybody is aware that it's creating some pressures in the housing market. At any rate, um, there's a strong case that they've already applied a lot of pressure. And as the impact of what they've done already feeds through, for example, into mortgage rates, uh, there's there's going to be uh, a bit of a slowdown and inflation will keep coming down. So that 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 all makes sense. And I think a lot of people would not be at all surprised. I think the forecasters still the majority and expect the bank not to move this time. But to tie it together with your uh, other topic, uh, now would be a very good time for all governments and particularly for the federal government, to um, be moving towards balanced budgets because the economy does not need the stimulus. We're having a big blow-off. We've just seen inflation spike up. And one of the things that's disturbing to me at any rate about the federal government's behavior particularly is that with every fall statement and with every budget we see spending in the out years is just going up you know by 10 billion by 15 billion at a time so even as soon as we get uh, one projection it gets outmoded because they just keep uh, running the higher numbers and that was why i wrote this piece that said uh, maybe the u.s debt ceiling crisis much though everybody seems to hate it maybe that'd be a good thing for us to have too Right. I mean, yeah, especially in a minority government situation. I mean, I guess the majority government would would have an easier time in in increasing that debt ceiling. But, you know, for a government to have to justify those increases, to have to involve the other parties, to have some negotiation, maybe some compromise, that that could be a good thing in a Canadian context. Well, I think it could be a very good thing. If you think just, uh, you know, the take a household, you, you, you do your finances for the year and you're thinking about all kinds of things, including... Uh, what's happening with your credit cards, what's happening with your mortgage. And if you make an agreement about what the target is, then during the course of the year, you have to do things that are consistent with that. And the trouble that we have in Canada right now is that there is no, uh, there's no target. I mean, the government has talked about the debt to GDP ratio, the ratio of federal debt to GDP as being some kind of a constraint. Um, but in the last budget, they showed it going up Uh uh, before going down. And that's despite the fact that the economy is on a tear and revenue boosted by inflation is just pouring in. So uh, the idea of the debt ceiling, I mean, it got bad press, a lot of bad commentary abroad, because if you're outside the United States, their borrowing isn't so obviously your problem. And we're all worried about the, what happens if they uh, go into a big fiscal spasm and there's a recession or they default on their debt. There's a financial crisis. We're like bystanders to this show south of the border. And yet 
all they're doing is they're saying we had a previous target. We had an agreement on the amount of debt. And now it's true that Congress is complicit in this. You know, the fiscal policy they're running isn't consistent with that. But at least there comes a moment when they're they're brought face to face with that. And at the moment, the federal government doesn't seem to feel any constraint at all. So they're running up debt without uh, much consideration of whether the economy needs it, how much of the saving they're uh, absorbing could have gone to build factories and houses and infrastructure um, or, or what the interest costs are going to be in the long run. So it's not an impressive sight. Well, and this isn't consequence-free borrowing. I know the government, and you mentioned the, the debt-to-GDP ratio, and I mean, that speaks to Canada's capacity to handle that debt, which, okay, fair point. But again, it's not, it's not consequent-free borrowing. What are your concerns about the amount of debt we're going to be accumulating? And you look at this period from 2017 to 2027, it's a lot. Uh, and, and so what are the implications of all of that? Well, you mentioned that decade. It, it just happens the numbers work out this way that uh, uh, in the 150 years since Confederation, the federal government ran up a net debt of about $650 billion. And in the, in the decade from 2017 to 2027, if you look at their latest uh, 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 um, projections, they're uh, going to borrow the the same amount again. So, I mean, a dollar doesn't go quite as far as it used to, uh, but uh, one of the reasons dollars don't go as far as they used to is because there's been all this debt that the Bank of Canada bought and that created inflation. So, it's not an entirely unfair comparison. Um, the, the problem is that there, that we know now, we've seen it, that the debt-to-GDP ratio, it's a meaningful indicator. If I'm a credit rater, I'm going to watch that. Um, but it's not a meaningful constraint. When, if, the, if the prime minister were to sit around the cabinet table, they used to do that. I guess nowadays it's, uh, it's more just run out of the prime minister's office. But, um, you know, if, if, if somebody said, well, no, we can't have this program or we're going to have to raise that tax because we've got uh, this ratio of debt-to-GDP that we have to achieve – I, it's, that argument would never carry the day. So you need something else. Uh, I myself do like a balanced budget. I think for so many people, that's kind of like the basis of common sense. You want to spend a dollar more here, you're going to have to spend a dollar less there, or you're going to find a dollar more of revenue. There's something very special about zero. And so uh, uh, when the when the government announced, uh, this is the uh, election plank back in 2015, uh, running deficits was kind of a signature policy. Well, Politically, it was a clever tactic because the Conservatives wouldn't go there and the NDP wouldn't go there. Um, but it wasn't necessarily an economically smart thing to do. And it just seems to have, um, as, as we've just been discussing, produced this no-constraint atmosphere where they'll just add spending uh, with every fiscal update and, and every budget uh, as though there is no consequence. Right. I mean, we, we seem to have backed ourselves into a corner where, you know, when times are bad, we need to run deficits to stimulate the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But now what's the argument? Well, times are good. It doesn't matter. You know, we, we've got a strong economy. We can we can afford deficits like, you know, there, we seem to have locked ourselves into this regardless of how the economy is doing. It is, it is too bad that. Uh... Uh, it can it can be hard to focus people's attention, which I I mean I, it, I I was I was writing this sort of contrary piece about the debt ceiling for that exact reason. It does at least force you to confront the fact that what you said you wanted to do, what you committed to do uh, in the past, 
uh, now is a constraint or not, you know, you, you, you move it, but at least you have to acknowledge that there was a change there. And I, I worry that, uh, you know, there's, there's an ongoing thing. Going cold turkey is, is really tough, right? Uh, uh, that, that can be a, a very hard thing to do and um, it can be very traumatic. Um, but, uh, you know, some some people would argue the worst thing uh, that happens isn't when your credit when you hit your credit card limit you can't use it anymore. The problem is when you can continue to use it, because um, there is consequence to this debt. Um, it, it the interest payments that the federal government reports haven't gone up very much yet. Um, but it, that's one of the reasons I would like a debt discussion uh, in among MPs, for example, is because. Uh, there are other things going on. They sold a lot of that debt to the Bank of Canada. I think we discussed this on this in the, on the show in the past. They sold that debt to the Bank of Canada when interest rates were rock bottom. Well, you don't actually save any money if you're the federal government selling debt to the Bank of Canada because you own the Bank of Canada. So the interest you're not paying is also interest income you're not receiving. And when you look at the overall picture, the cost of servicing the debt has already gone up by more people, more than people think. But because we're not having these discussions, the MPs that actually do pay attention to that, and there are some, there are some from Alberta, uh, you know, they don't, they don't get much time uh, and attention for the work that they're doing because it just isn't a conversation that's happening. Absolutely. Well, your latest is mentioned is up at uh, theglobeandmail.com, much more at cdhow.org. William Robson, always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. All Bye-bye. the best. Uh, that's William Robson. He is a CEO of the CD Howe Institute, also chair of their Monetary Policy Council. So as for what to expect on Wednesday... Uh, Bill Robson doesn't think there's cause yet to go further with interest rate increases. We'll see what the bank decides to do. But also he makes the argument that, look, there needs to be a serious conversation in the nation's capital, not just about a path to getting back to a balanced budget, but a plan to address the debt. Uh, This is becoming a bigger and bigger challenge for Canada, and it's not really a priority, it seems, in Ottawa these days. Of course, one week ago was the Alberta provincial election, an election that resulted in a UCP majority, a much uh, closer result than we've seen in the past in terms of the actual makeup uh, of the Alberta legislature. But it felt like it was uh, a a hard-fought election, but also an election maybe that exposed a lot of uh, divisions or polarization in Alberta. But is that true? I mean, elections are often uh, emotional or hotly contested. Are things different here now? It's the whole climate of political polarization different now. Maybe not just in Alberta. We do see it elsewhere. Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. And it depends, I guess, on what kind of division we're talking about. In terms of ideas or ideology, there seems to be a lot that unites us as Alberta. And maybe it's not a coincidence that in, in various aspects uh, to, to the campaign, we did see both parties try to maybe move to the middle or try to win over voters in the middle. Maybe that's because, uh, you know, it comes to what we actually want from our government. There's a lot of common ground in Alberta. But when it comes to political identity, there does still seem to be some division. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about why this division exists, what it means, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jared Wesley, political science professor at the University of Alberta, lead researcher with the group Common Ground, a team of researchers uh, from across the University of Alberta and uh, the province who have been looking at this whole issue of polarization. They've been doing some really interesting uh, survey research on this. Uh, professor Wesley, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
afternoon. So when we talk about division or, or polarization, like, well, what do those terms mean to you, first of all? Uh, well, in, in political science, speak, there's about five or six different ways to measure polarization. I think, um, you know, most people that you talk to when they when they uh, when they talk about Alberta or Albertans being polarized, they think that you know, there's a group of folks on the left, and they're far away from the folks that are on the right. They disagree about matters of public policy. They they disagree about you know the fundamental ideas of how to order society and what our future should look like. And as you mentioned, our, it's just not borne out by by our survey research. We've been I've been doing polls in, in this province for the last two decades, and uh, our team has been looking at this intently for the last uh, four years or so, and just don't see evidence that ideas are are really dividing Albertans. Yeah, which is good. Um, but what is then? It has a lot to do with uh, with time worn political identities and largely uh, organized around around partisanship. I know the rise of the NDP has been you know a relatively new phenomenon, but there's there's been d- dating back number of decades an animosity towards uh, you know progressive or socialist uh, style parties and affinity for conservative parties, and that certainly plays out um, in our in our research as well. Um, but I guess what's new in, in Alberta politics is that the two sides are, are relatively evenly matched. And as you mentioned in the, in the intro, that, that's led to some pretty divisive and, and heated uh, debates during the campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of unique, almost not just in Alberta politics, almost in Canadian politics, to really have what's essentially a, a two-party system. Um, not really. I mean, at, at the provincial level, particularly in the West, Alberta has joined a club that includes all, all uh, Western provinces that have, uh, you know, let's say two-party systems that are more or less polarized between the New Democrats on the left and, and some some conservative party go by different names in different provinces. And actually, across the country, it's, it's rare. Manitoba, Ontario, uh, to an extent, Quebec uh, has these multi-party systems. But for the most part, it is does boil down to two-party politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know, I mean that that's you know that's that's a byproduct, I guess, of, of where the voters have drifted to. But does does that matter? Is that relevant in in the degree of of division or polarization that you, that you might see? Yeah, and and let's let's not give polarization you know a necessarily bad uh, bad rap here. People need to see clear options on a ballot yeah. in in, or, in order to make. You know, um, in, in order to make real real decisions about the future of their communities, um, it's when that polarization turns into what some in the United States call tribal politics, what we call factional politics here uh, in, in in Alberta. It's when you stop treating your opponents as you know um, adversaries to be defeated at the ballot box and start treating them as enemies to be you know vanquished entirely, uh, marginalized, and we start you know, seeing rules redrawn or, or uh, you know, to, to try to marginalize your opponents. And, and that, that's the kind of factionalistic behavior that we're on guard for here because we see it, you know, play out south of the border that in, in some instances results in political violence. We're not there in Alberta. I'm not going to say we're not there yet, but we're, we're not there. Um, but our team is definitely on the lookout for that, you know, that, the, the dark side of polarization. Yeah, I, and there was evidence of that. I, you know, there's some of the stuff you see on social media. Maybe it's not indicative of where the general public's at, but it's an indication, I guess, of you know where some of this is going. Just how heated some of that rhetoric can get, and it seems counterintuitive at one level that if we're not really divided on policy or what we want from government, 
How is it then that we, that we fall into these factions where, you know, the other side are just, you know, the worst possible people and, uh, boy, if they're in charge, they're just going to destroy everything, right? I mean, it, it seems so far removed from where there's actual agreement or disagreement on, on real ideas and policy. Yeah, and I have to remind myself and the rest of my team that the average Albertan is not on Twitter. Right, right exactly. It's only a very small subset that gets into debates there. And even on Facebook, um, you know, we, we find that, uh, most people are on Facebook, uh, at least older folks, and uh, but they don't want to engage in political debate there. If there's one thing I've learned in two decades of studying Alberta public opinion is that most Albertans don't want to think about politics, right? They don't want to engage. They like boring government um, that stays out of their way, uh, and they only get you know dragged into these kinds of fights, um, you know, reluctantly. And as you said in the intro, most Albertans uh, place themselves in the center of the political spectrum. They don't like choosing sides, and they don't like when they're forced to. And I think. That's why this election was particularly jarring for a lot of people. It was. I, I do wonder, I mean, you know, the idea of, of finding identity in politics and even the kind of politics is almost detached from ideas. It, it seems kind of curious. I, I don't know if that's maybe to some extent a byproduct of the last few years or people just wanting to find connection or belonging or a sense of purpose. I, I, I don't know. I mean, how do we trace back the origins of this or is it necessarily even all, all that new of a phenomenon? Well, it's it's new in in Alberta. First of all, the, the you know the the need, the impulse to want to be like other people, and to in, in some cases to um, you know to disparage out groups. That that's that's comes as part of of human nature. I sure. think what's new in Alberta is that. You know, for, for years, there, there weren't a lot of options, right? I moved here in 2011, and um, politics was boring. People weren't even turning out to vote. In some elections in the early 2000s, you know, turnout was in the 40% range. But now Albertans uh, do have uh, options on the ballot, and they are being pushed by, by certain elites to, 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 to you know, form, form into these, these factions. Um, and, and that's something that's relatively new. We're not used to it. We're not used to two-party politics in that way. And, and as I say, I, I think a lot of Albertans are just uncomfortable with the notion. So some of the survey results, you know, some of the surveys you, that, that your group has been doing, um, you know, the, some of the questions here jump out to me, like the idea of, you know, being friends with someone on the quote-unquote mm-hmm. other side or welcoming uh, someone from the other side into your family or even some of the questions about, you know, for example, do you agree with the statement, my party should win every election or elections are like war? So some of these results suggest that, yeah, th- this is, is a real factor in Alberta politics right now. Yeah, we, we borrowed some of these scales from the United States. And, and according to some of the measures, you know, Alberta is at where the United States was in 2004. So this, take you back a couple of decades when the Tea Party was just uh, was just ramping up and so on. So that's that's if, if we continue on that trajectory, we may end up where the United States was. Um, but one of the questions that we borrowed, as you mentioned, was, um, you know, how comfortable if you were a progressive, how comfortable would you be if a conservative uh, moved in next door or became would you welcome them as a friend? Would you welcome them as marrying into your family? And people are really reticent to do that on both the progressive and the conservative side. Um, what, what I would suggest is, though, that these are these are questions that people answer uh, in the you know from the comfort of their home own home or from behind their phone screen. It, I think what we found through our focus groups is once people are in the same room together, they're looking eye to eye. I think that's where we start to see some some development of, of empathy and the breaking down of, of these silos. So I'm I'm encouraged with 
you know, the pandemic uh, allowing us now, and as it, as it winds down, allowing us to get face to face again, that some of these barriers will be broken down. And I, I want to be absolutely clear, and our team is at every opportunity reminding folks, we're not talking about making friends with extreme groups that are based on hate. That's not what right. we're talking about here. And fortunately, here in, in Alberta, we don't have, um, you know, a sizable part of the population that is dedicated to those kinds of hateful norms. But folks on either side of the spectrum are being painted as that. And as a result, people don't want to uh, to engage with folks that are on the other side of the spectrum. And I think most people are uh, are open to those kinds of conversations and persuasion. Well, we'll leave it on that uh, more optimistic note. Much more at commongroundpolitics.ca. Uh, Jared Wesley, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All the best. That's uh, Professor Jared Wesley, the University of Alberta political science professor at Lee Researcher with uh, Common Ground Politics, commongroundpolitics.ca. So interesting research that they're doing. Some of it may not come as a surprise. So what's it going to take to get over some of those divisions? You know, why do we see politics, you know, kind of descending into that factional or identity politics. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.